Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors on staff and uh, glad to be here with you. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 51. We're going to be looking at Psalm 51 both t- this week and next. So not to overwhelm anybody, but that is a two-part mini-series within the summer series. As you turn there, uh, a couple things about Psalm 51 personally, uh, but also I think historically, uh, few psalms and maybe even fewer texts of the Bible have impacted Christians, uh, and I would be one of them uh, other than Psalm 51. And uh, I remember like it was yesterday hearing somebody preach on Psalm 51 at a retreat that I was at in college, changed everything about how I think about myself, how I think about God, and how I think about others. Um, but, uh, about five years ago, I got to listen to a sermon from uh, a pastor out in California named Rankin Wilburn, who pastors a church called Pacific Crossroads, uh, that uh, a lot of what I want to offer y'all this morning uh, comes from. Um, and so uh, it has continued to impact my life. And I hope the same is true for you, whether you've heard this psalm a uh, hundred times or a thousand times, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time this morning. So with that, let's give our attention uh, to the word of God found in Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness of God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we pray now that as we look at your word, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not, uh, Lord, and that you would change us, uh, and by change, Lord, that you would um, create in our hearts a soil that is good enough to receive this word, that you would water it, that you would allow it to grow, that we would leave here 
changed people. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. I've been uh, a big fan of the ESPN 30 for 30 series. If you've uh, watched any of those about I think it's a few years ago to celebrate ESPN's 30 years uh, of being a network and bringing sports to um, <clears throat> the world uh, through television, they created uh, a volume that chronicled 30 of, to them, uh, 30 of the most, um, could be influential, but just interesting at least, uh, moments in sports. And if you watch any of them, you know how incredible they, they really are. And so now we're on to the third volume. And uh, this past June, they released one called Doc and Daryl. And this week I had the, the privilege of ignoring my children and all parental responsibilities because uh, I was glued to this story uh, of, of Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry, who were two of baseball's most iconic players for the Mets, but not only for the Mets in the 80s, but also uh, for, the, for, the, for New York City. They were, they were stars um, of, of the city, kings of the city. Uh, they were drafted out of high school, and by 1986, uh, the Mets had won the World Series. And it seemed like for a moment that this team would just last forever, that nobody would ever be able to bring them down. But what the 30 for 30 documentary shows, and you all know what's coming, is what was going on in the lives of these two stars, these two athletes, um, during this season of just amazing athleticism and play. And it was nothing short of tragic. Uh, Drug use that quickly became addiction, expulsion from baseball, sexual assault charges, drug possession charges, incarceration, multiple incarcerations, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances to come back to baseball, only to continue Uh, The use of drugs, which led to further incarcerations, which led to further arrests, further just everything. It got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I sat there watching this, and my stomach just was turning as this was going on and on and on. Um, You know, I was thought to myself for a moment, I I traded these guys baseball cards as a kid. This is somewhat personal to me at this point. Like, Doc, how could you do this, Right. Just stop. But as I sat there watching, seeing the addiction take hold, seeing one tragedy in these men's lives occur after another, I began to ask this question. Can people really change? Do people really change? Is is change possible? And if it is, how? How? What was easy for me to do, because I remember doing this when I actually saw these guys in the news later in the 90s, was to think to myself, gosh, I'm glad I'm not them. Or to think to myself, how stupid do you have to be to throw away this opportunity? And see, we do that, right? We have this tendency to come in and compare ourselves to others so that we don't have to really deal with ourselves. You know, I'm at least not as bad as fill in the blank. I'm at least not as bad as this next person. But if I stop and I begin to focus on myself for two minutes, if I reflect just a little bit, as I began to do in that chair this week watching this, 
I begin to think about the things in my own life, and I begin to ask the same question. Is change really possible, not just for other people, but for me too? When I begin to think about the habitual sins, when I begin to think about who I was five years ago or ten years ago, as a little bit of a track record begins to show itself at 36, I'm forced to ask the question, is that even possible for me too? And I wonder if you have asked the same question. For this week and next, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51. And this psalm, I believe, holds the answer to that question, can people change, and if so, how? What we see in this psalm from David is that change in the Bible begins with repentance. But repentance begins with experiencing the grace of God in our lives. In other words, it begins the moment that you realize that you're the person, that you're the person who has been given second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, and you didn't deserve it, but you got it anyways. When that foot drops for us, that is the moment that grace enters our life and is the moment, according to Psalm 51, that repentance is possible, that change can happen. So with that, as you see on your outline, I want to look at Three things, try to get in three things uh, this morning, and we'll, we'll pick up next week uh, where we left off. But the first one there is, you know, what did David do? Where did the psalm come from? What did David do? How did David respond? And if there's time, how repentance comes about, okay? So let's take that first one. What did David do? You'll notice that this psalm, and this is part of the Hebrew, Begins with this to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. What this means for us is that to find out what David did, we have to, and, and, and what prompted this psalm, we have to actually go back to 2 Samuel 11 to find out what happened, which starts like this in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And then verse 2 says this, it happened. It happened. What happened? So let me summarize for our first point, 2 Samuel 11 for us whether we've heard it before or not. Here's what happened according to 2 Samuel 11. First, David notices this beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop, and he decides to send for her. Now, she wasn't just some woman that he happened to notice, which maybe you thought that before when you read this. This was the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Well, who was that? Eliam and Uriah were some of David's closest, most Uh, Just personal friends. They were more than just friends. In some ways, they were tighter than family. For these men put their lives on the line for David way back before he became king and, and when Saul was king. As a matter of fact, they were part of a team called David's Mighty Men, a band of brothers like no other. And we know this because 2 Samuel 23 ends with a list of David's mighty men. And Eliam and Uriah are there. You can go read about that if you want to. So David sends for Bathsheba, who is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, two of his most faithful, loyal friends. And what does David do? 
Why does he send for her? The text tells us he sent for her in order to sleep with her. And that's what he did. Bathsheba comes to David soon after and he tells him these words, I am pregnant. Context clues help here, right? I am pregnant. And David, instead of owning his sin and going before the Lord and going to Eliam and Uriah and asking for forgiveness, he begins to plot a way to cover his tracks. And so he sends Uriah, sends for Uriah, and this is when the wheels begin to fall off. Three times Uriah comes to David. They engage in some small talk. In the first conversation we read there, David encourages Uriah to go home and to wash your feet, which I understand now is a euphemism for go home and have sex with your wife. What is David doing? It's clear. He's trying to cover up his mistake. If I can get Uriah to go home and be with Bathsheba, maybe they will get pregnant, or at least you'll think that... Or Uriah will at least think that this is his baby. You see where he's going with this. But Uriah never does. He's actually more concerned about getting back into battle than he is about doing what David is asking him to do. Two more times David asks, and Uriah says no. Finally, finally David does the unthinkable. And in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 11, he says, the text says this. And he writes a letter and has Uriah take it to the general Which reads, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. It doesn't get much worse than that. Uriah running with a note from King David thinking, this is my duty. This is what I'm supposed to do. Never knowing that in his hand holds his own death sentence. It doesn't get much more cold-blooded than this. As the story ends, we find out that many others died in the process to cover up David's request to have Uriah put in the front lines. And this is 2 Samuel 11. So what did David do? What did David do? Just looking at one story, David coveted. David lied. He stole. He committed adultery. And murder. And as one pastor puts it, that's half of the Ten Commandments right there. This is the backstory leading up to Psalm 51. David, a man after God's own heart, a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, and a thief. This is what David did. Which forces the question this morning, why is this story, 2 Samuel 11, here in the Bible? Why is it here? Why would you put a story in here with your best man? This is King David again. If there was an Old Testament Christian model, the perfect Christian, this is him. Why would you put a story of such horrendous tragedy In the Bible like this. Because this is one of those stories in scripture that levels any argument or opinion that the Bible is just some book about morals and how to live a good life. That God will bless you and that you'll get into heaven someday. If the Bible is about how God, if the Bible is about how to be a good person, why is this here? 
You see, the story for centuries has destroyed paradigm after paradigm after paradigm of what people think about Christianity, what they think about themselves, and what they think about others. If Christianity for you is about nice people doing nice things in order to sort of appease and at best mild temper God, why is this here? I think we have to answer that question. This story is here because the Bible isn't about those things. It's here because the Bible isn't a book about morals. It's not a book about nice people doing nice things, trying to appease and at best a mild temper God. It's here because the Bible is about a God who is in the business of rescuing a bunch of Davids, Dwights, and Daryls. A bunch of people to and for himself for no other reason than he loves them. People who do massive harm to themselves and to each other who don't deserve God's love, but get it anyway. That's what the Bible is about. And that's what Psalm 51 is a testimony of. I like how one pastor puts it in Second Samuel, about Second Samuel 11. Why is this text here? Because the Bible is about a God who persistently works with people who do not deserve it, who could not deserve it, who do not seek the Lord's love and who do not appreciate it when they get it. That hurts. That hurts. But that's why this story is here. Because one of the things this story about David tells us that I personally want to ignore this morning is that if David is capable of such behavior and actions, what about me? What about me? What this story means, as one commentator puts it, is that the seeds of the most despicable deeds imaginable were present in the most dedicated of hearts towards God. That should cause us some serious reflection. So I have to ask, do I think I'm capable of this? Do I think I'm any better? And of course, you need to ask yourselves that. But because I'm up here, I'll go first. Do I think I'm better? Yes. I absolutely think I do. I am. And that's why I need this text. That's why 2 Samuel 11 is in the Bible, for me at least. It's because I think I'm better. And I need to read this. And I need the Holy Spirit to show me that the seeds of the most despicable deeds imaginable are not only right here. In the most dedicated of hearts towards God. But as we'll see here in a minute, I've, I, I need this because I need the Holy Spirit to show me that I've needed the grace and mercy of God way before I ever realized it. I need the Holy Spirit to show me there's no way you think you're better than David. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? <clears throat> It's at this point, I think we're ready then to come to Psalm 51. And before we move to the second point, look, this might be as far as some of us are able to go this morning. And that's, that is great. Some of us really need to do business with what is the Bible about? Why is this story here? Do I think I'm better? 
Because we have to answer those questions before Psalm 51 really begins to make sense to us. And and I say that, you know, it's not that we ever really truly get to the bottom of those things and that somehow we've exhausted Psalm 51. No, you know how this works. You will spend the rest of your life trying to figure this out. But maybe more what I'm trying to say is for us to begin to become open to what the Lord might be showing us this morning. Those questions are questions that we have to deal with. And for some of us, that might be as far as we go today. And that is fine. But as I've said, if we aren't dialed into what David did, we won't understand the depths of the psalm. And more importantly, we won't know why we need it to. And this is what David did. Now, how did he respond? This gets to the second point. <laughs> how did David respond? Did you see it right there in verse 1? Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O God. One of the greatest lines in the Bible, one of the most important sentences you could ever say to and about yourself in your entire life. Oh God, have mercy on me. What is mercy? Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone in a moment when they are, when they are utterly helpless. I'll say it again. Mercy is compassion and forgiveness shown towards someone in a moment when they are utterly helpless. The problem with me thinking that I'm better than David or Daryl or Doc is that I don't recognize the helplessness in my own sin and what it has caused. I don't recognize the helplessness my own sin has caused me. Many of you maybe have read some books on climbing Everest. And uh, there's, there's you know, one that came out about 20 years ago by uh, John Krakauer called Into Thin Air. And then last year, um, he wasn't too happy about it, but last year they, they, they made a movie about it called Everest. And we were watching that um, earlier this week, actually. It brought back a lot of this book. And uh, one of the interesting things that you learn as you study this stuff, uh, as you learn about what it takes to climb something that high, um, given the tragedy that has happened for those that have tried to do something like this, you know, uh, the story into thin air is the story of eight people dying on the mountain um, that John Krakauer was a part of. But one of the things you learn is that at about 24, 25,000 feet, the oxygen is so thin that every second, every minute you stay above that elevation, your body is dying. You can't live up there. So there's this moment here where, all right, we don't want to stay here any longer than we have to. Oh, and we still have another mile to go before we get to the summit, right? And so p- part of this is, it has to do with when you read about people planning to ascend Everest, the physical fitness is the most important part of this. And so people, you know, forget about the thousands of dollars that people spend to get guides to take them up there. You have to spend two to three to four years getting yourself in the greatest of shape, the best of shape that you've ever, ever gotten in. Because once you get up to that level, once you make that final hike, you're not bringing anything with you besides oxygen. Because everything up there is ten times harder than it is here because of the lack of oxygen. So during the climb, you hit about five different base camps in order to let your body acclimate. But it's here that most people don't even get the chance to reach the summit. Why? Because their bodies fail. And we're talking about people who are in the best shape of their lives. 
and probably the hardest part of either watching the movie or reading the book is, is, is getting into the investment, the enormous investment, the sacrifice that it takes for the moment, the possibility to, to take that last little bit and make that summit. When you realize that people get up there and their bodies fail and they're forced to head back down the mountain. It's the hardest part of the whole thing. People dying is hard. I get it. That's hard too. Sorry. But this is hard too, right? This is hard too. Sorry about that. Most people sign up to do this. They pay all this money and they end up finding out that it's their fitness that doesn't allow them to go to the top. In other words, even the best fitness your body can achieve doesn't guarantee you a chance to reach the top of this mountain. Now, what does it have to do with David? David, When David says, have mercy on me, O God, he is seeing the summit, as it were, of God's law. And he is realizing, even in my greatest moments, my greatest deeds, my greatest moments of being king, I don't have a chance at reaching the summit. I am helpless. I am helpless and see, David's writing of Psalm 51 is him coming to the reality that what the law requires, what God requires of him is like climbing a mountain. That's not just Everest, but really a thousand, maybe a thousand more miles higher than Everest that nobody ever has a chance of climbing in the first place. It can't be done. So it's not just a plea of what he did that day for Uriah to Uriah and Bathsheba. And this is the point. What David is realizing is that he needs God's mercy, not just for a bad few couple few bad moments in his life. He needs mercy for all the things that he's never been able to do, nor will he ever be able to do in his life to begin with. That's mercy. That's the helplessness that David is crying out for in verse 1, which break the world into two types of people. There are those who just say, look, I'm just going to keep climbing and I'm going to make it someday. And then there are those who cry mercy. David cried mercy. And what we've got to ask ourselves is, which one are you? Which one are you? Because what Psalm 51 teaches us about repentance is that it will never happen until you're able to cry mercy like David. Which means repentance will never happen until, until you see how truly helpless you are. And if that's confusing, we got to go right back to the first point. Do you think you're better than David? Look at how David talks about this in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or the NIV reads it this way. Surely I was sinful at birth. And see, David is not commenting on the way his mother conceived him or brought him into this world. He's recognizing something crucial about himself, and that is David doesn't need God's mercy because of a few really bad moments in his life. You remember that day when I lied and stealed and coveted and had an adultery and murdered? If I could just sort of wipe that clean, I would be good. That's not what David is realizing. David needs mercy because he's needed it his entire life, and he didn't know it. 
It's essentially David saying, I've needed mercy my entire life. I just didn't believe it until now. And let me ask you this. Has there ever been a moment in your life when you've realized the same thing? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you said to yourself or to someone, I didn't know I needed mercy all the time? See, the Pharisees in the New Testament were content to climb. They were climbers. But even if they didn't reach the summit, as long as they were able to climb higher than most people, right, following the law a little better, then they thought to themselves, how could God not have favor towards us? How could we not get into this kingdom? Which is why Jesus and all of his interactions with Pharisees, if you recall, was trying to show them what? Their brokenness. Their need for mercy. So that they'd what? Repent. It's the same story. It's the same story. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you've realized, I've needed mercy my entire life. I just didn't know it. Because if you have, like David... You've encountered the grace of God. And friends, there is nothing more powerful than that. Nothing. And it is the only thing that has the ability to bring repentance into our lives. But until that foot drops, like it did for David, that I haven't needed mercy for a few bad days or a few bad things in my life. I've needed it for my entire life and I've gotten it even though I didn't deserve it. Until that happens, change is not possible. You might feel guilty about things and that's an external reaction. You might change some external behavior, but, but what does David get to at the end of this? If I could bring forth sacrifices, I would, but that's not what you want. You want what a broken and contrite heart, the inner being, the inner being, this is what he wants. And that change, that That's the repentance that this psalm is speaking about will never happen until the grace of God enters our life. And this gets to the third point, how repentance comes about. Real repentance comes about when you realize you've needed mercy your entire life, did nothing to deserve it, and got it anyways. This is grace. This is what leads us to repent. One of the most interesting and confusing lines in the entire psalm is verse 4. David says in verse 4, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, Against you, you only. Speaking to God, have I sinned. Have you ever read that and thought, wait a minute here. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 11. I think there were a few more people there. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure if I saw God show up. Um, right? What about these people? What about Bathsheba, Uriah? Haven't you sinned against them? What about all those who suffered and died in the wake of David's selfishness? What about those people? Didn't you sin against them too? And the answer is yes. But what David is saying here is that all sin actually has a more personal component to it towards God. Sin, again, sin offends God first, right, and worst. Sin offends God first and worst. 
Because it's an attack, one, on the very creation of God. It's an attack on his image. But second, it's only sin because God's there to declare it sinful, right? And we could talk about that another day. But did Uriah sin or did David sin against Uriah? Absolutely. Does David need to seek his forgiveness? Does David need to seek the forgiveness of Bathsheba? Absolutely. And that's not what this text is saying. Does forgiveness mean no consequences for sin? No. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But what we learn about ourselves and what we learn about sin is that until we see the greater offense, until we see that our sin, as much as it impacts those that it is against, impacts God more than we could ever imagine, we will not actually hate our sin. We won't, we, won't, we won't be broken over it. This is the whole irony of the gospel. Is that when we go there, when we begin to understand that this is the offense. This is the person who carries the weight of my offense. This is also the person who is right there to what? Offer you your first words of forgiveness. That is grace. And only that has the power to motivate you to change in the way that the Bible talks about change. Where is the grace for David quickly in this story, in this account? In chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, right after chapter 11, right after all this mess, here's how chapter 12 starts. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Do you hear the grace of God there? Right? And the Lord sent Nathan to David, which brings us back to the very beginning of Psalm 51. But in order to get David to realize what he had actually done, God had to send someone to David to tell him a story, to begin to see himself for who he was, but more importantly, to begin to see who he had really sinned against, but who had really offered him forgiveness already. And see, the, the beauty of this, the grace of this, is that in the midst of, of, of just horrific tragedy of someone's life, God never stops pursuing those he loves. And that is the gospel for you this morning. He pursues those he loves. There is nothing you have done or can do to get yourself outside of the grace of God. And if that looks like sending somebody in order to show you your sin, that is grace in and of itself, even though we may not want to deal with it. Why? Because it leads to repentance. It leads you to a father who says, come be with me. I wanted you to be a part of my team before you, eat, before you eat, were even aware of what you'd done. Come be with me. And it was through Nathan that David realized this. You can belong to me in spite of your sin. That is how grace leads us to repentance. Now, here's my question. What is keeping you from opening your heart to a God like that? To a God who is willing to say to people who don't deserve it, who, when they receive his love, don't really care. What is keeping you from opening your heart to a God like that? To a God whose whole mission in life is to get his people to understand his love by grace. And maybe a way to answer that question is, does that make you angry this morning? Does that bother you 
that that is how God operates. Until we're able to cry mercy, until we're able to see that we are the people who have been given the second and third and fourth and 20th and 30th and 40th and 50th chance in your life. You have been given more than you ever deserved, and God gladly gives it to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Until you recognize that that is who you are, repentance will never happen. To come back, and this is to close, to come back to the 30 for 30 documentary on Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. Never thought I'd be preaching a sermon with these guys in here. But then again, who thought we'd be preaching a sermon about David, right? All right, there you go. It was in uh, the lowest point of, of these guys, of their careers, of their lives, uh, when the baseball world had written them off, when um, so many uh, tabloids and articles had just um, shamed and humiliated these men. And, you know, for all practical accounts, they deserved it, right? I mean, they threw this away. Uh, it was in the midst of that moment that in 1995, they got a call from then owner of the, of the New York Yankees, uh, George Steinbrenner, of all people, who said this, that I want you to come play for me. I want you to come play for me. In the documentary, as Gooden and Strawberry, now in their 50s, shells of the people that they used to be, shells of the athletes that they once were, they sat in the diner in Queens talking about that day. That day they got the call from Steinbrenner who said, come and play with me. That is the day that they both agreed that that their life began to change. Now, was it perfect after that? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, there's a little bit more to the story as well before things really begin to change. Was it the first time grace was offered to them? No, right? People had come along their lives, into their lives, and and offered them way more than they ever deserved. But it was the first time that they'd actually received it and experienced it. Both Gooden and Strawberry, ironically, would finish their careers out as Yankees, having started as Mets, um, going on to win three more World Series before they retired. And in Gooden's final year, he gets to pitch a no-hitter two days before his dad dies. What's the last game ever watched him pitch? Some remarkable way to end their career. But during this time, as I said, they weren't perfect and their change wasn't immediate, but they began to get the help that they needed simply because they couldn't say no to what had been offered them, what had been already given to them by Steinbrenner. Strawberry would retire and later remarry. He would become a born-again Christian and now spends all of his life devoted to helping uh, those who are uh, glued or or, or addicts, but also those who um, have autistic children. This is what he's doing with his life now. Why is he doing that? And the way, way the documentary ends is because in 1995, someone said, come play on my team. I want you to be on my team. What Gooden and Strawberry are trying to figure out as the documentary closes is how is that possible? How is that possible? Look, Steinbrenner didn't call them and say, look, I want you to fix your life. I want you to get cleaned up. All right? And then maybe we'll talk about you coming to play for the Yankees. He took them at their worst. He took them at their worst. Basically, he said to them, look, you botched it as Mets. You botched it as a Dodger. 
you botched it in life. But now you're a Yankee. Come and be on my team. And friends, that's the gospel. That is the gospel of Jesus. This is what he says to you. This is what he says to me. And this is what he says to David. You botched it. But I want you to come be on my team. I want you to come play for me. And like Gooden and like Strawberry, we will spend our entire lives trying to comprehend this grace. Trying to understand and trying to figure out how in the world does God still want me? How in the world is he ever able to shine his face down upon me? And then all of a sudden the cross of Jesus gets so much more beautiful and believable, doesn't it? This is how. This is how. Only because of the grace of God. Look, grace always comes before true repentance. It is the means of repentance. And until we've seen that we are the people who have been given second and third and fourth and fifth chances with God. Never deserving one of those. Will we ever begin to change? And what we're going to see next week is that this is actually how we begin to share that grace and, and, and deal with others in our lives. Right? As they begin to change too. We'll see how grace changes us and what real change looks like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to contemplate the things that David writes here. And maybe this week, think about the context in which he wrote them. And what you did for him. Someone who didn't deserve what he got, but he got it anyways. That is grace. Would you use that in our lives to change us, to make us people, to make us the people you have called us to be? We ask this in your son's name. Amen.